welcome anyone tuning into this. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Jimmy Hill from Raptor Aid, based here in the UK. And as part of a fundraiser that we are doing for the Philippine Eagle Foundation over in the Philippines and the critically endangered Philippine Eagle, I have managed to pull together two absolute filmmaking cinematographer heavyweights. So I'm very pleased (laughs) to be joined by Neil Rettig, based out in America, who has been working on the Philippine Eagle for, well, longer than I've been alive. Sorry, Neil, if that makes you feel old. Um, (laughs) James Aldred, who has also been been, uh, lucky enough to work and film the Philippine Eagle, among many other things. James is based in the UK. Uh, and James recently uh, filmed for Netflix with the Philippine Eagle. So I think I'm right in thinking, you might be able to correct me, the pair of you, that you're probably the only two cinematographers that have ever filmed a wild Philippine Eagle nest that's then been put into production. Is that right? I don't think I've made that up. Well, yeah, it's right uh, to a certain extent. But when I was uh, in the Philippines on both you know, these uh, projects, the, the original one in the 70s, and then the, the latest one in, in 2013, we had other cinematographers. Uh, Skip Hobby was uh, one who worked with the Cornell Project. And then uh, Alan Deegan and Wolfgang Saul years and years ago when we were 27 years old, a long time ago. Well, Neil, I think we probably have to go back to the start, if you would, because of without me going through you know reams and reams of of notes that i've written down about what you've achieved and what you've done just tell us a little bit about how you started with the philippine eagle and the philippine eagle foundation as well back in the early days i can tell you exactly how that all happened uh in in 1974 we were uh, working in guyana filming harpy eagles and it was uh we, we were swinging in our hammocks at night and saying to each other, what the heck are we going to do next? And back then it was called the Philippine monkey eating eagle. And so we started to dream about the next project with a rare large forest eagle and that we set our goals on that. And sure enough, in 1977, we formed a nonprofit called Free Limited Films and Research for an Endangered Environment. Got on board Rob, uh, Dr. Robert Kennedy head to the Philippines uh, with 48 camera cases and uh, spring-wound Bolex cameras and a couple of you know battery-operated cameras and ended up staying for almost two years. Five, and we found five nest sites. Wow. I mean, that's, that's quite... Well, there's, there's several things there that are quite something. How old were you then, Neil? Sorry, just... At 27. Brilliant. I mean, 1977, so you can figure that out. (laughs) (laughs) It was definitely before I was born, that's for sure. Anyway, I was right on that one. But I mean, that's that's seriously, it's cool. I think that's so cool that you had the foresight um, to to do that. And I suppose in that, on that subject, just talk about, you mentioned someone there that I, I only know via social media, but Dr. Rob, uh, Kennedy, tell us a little bit about him and, and the work that you ended up doing out in the Philippines then. Well, uh, Bob uh, Bob Kennedy was working actually for the Peace Corps 
and published a paper in the Wilson Bulletin on the uh, population status of the then called monkey eating eagle. But he was also very interested in harpy eagles. And so uh, I, Bob invited me to give a, a George Sutton presentation in Oklahoma. George Sutton was a, a very famous ornithologist. He passed away many years ago. And uh, we showed our very primitive, crazy harpy eagle material that we shot with springwound bolaxes back then. And then Bob wanted to get on board and that's how we got our team together. We had just gotten off the harpy project so we formed this nonprofit, Free Limited, and Bob helped raise funds, and we set off to the Philippines, like I said, with 48 camera cases and ended up staying for two years. This is probably something you and James can talk about, because I, that when you talk about these cameras, I have to admit, obviously, I'm ignorant to this, because I could, I could barely take a picture on an iPhone, never mind. Um, the, the cameras you're talking about. So this kit, what, what sort of kit was this that you were filming on? James, I don't know, you, you can feel free to chip in as well with what you started with. Well, you know, we started, in the case of the Harpy Eagle in 1974, some of our main cameras were the, actually the spring-operated Bolex camera because we had no electricity. We were living in a hut in the jungle. And then we had a camera called a Bellou, which is a French camera. And these are all, you know, 16 millimeter cameras that took 100 foot loads. And you'd get like 27 seconds uh, at normal speed with a windup. Things are a lot different now, you know. Uh, and I, I think back at, at that primitive method and what we could have done if we had the gear we have today. We, would have never yes. been, we wouldn't have been able to- It's an interesting do. thing that. <laughs> it, it, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because the way um, technology sort of um, has improved over the years, and you've probably found the same, Neil, but I, I find myself going back to the same places, sometimes staying in literally the same hut in the middle of nowhere, filming exactly the same thing five years later on a new bit of kit. And, and thank goodness, you know, <laughs> otherwise, you know, because on, on the one hand, it's slightly strange to be going back and doing the same thing again. But on the other hand, you know, if we were filming in 8K right at the beginning, we'd all be out of a job by now. Exactly. So, you know. <laughs> That's really a good point, you know. And, uh, you know, I look back at some of the footage that we thought was state of the art and it, it's grainy and muddy and you go and you can just see the grain popping out. But, you know, the thing is that, you know, relating to what we're saying right now, there are certain things in the evolution of our careers that are not possible to film anymore because the animals are gone or the yeah. habitats are gone. And that's yeah, a tragedy. That's pretty that, is a, that is a tragedy. I mean, it's um, when, when I first went to Borneo, um, I was still sort of um, a bit late then, even. I, I felt like. Um, in a way, a lot of the damage had already been done, but this was in the mid nineties, but, um, and I didn't think it could get much worse, but going back there as regularly as I have uh, over the last 25 years or so, every time I go back, it's just worse and worse and worse. Just when you think it can't get any worse, it is, you know, it's sort of, everything's turned into a bit of a theme park now, branded, you know, sold to honeymooners as a rainforest experience. And 
when you see it from the air, it's, you know, a 50th of the size that it was when you first went there. And, and that's pretty, that's pretty sobering, um, you know, and, and, and pretty depressing. And I'm not quite sure, you know, how, how to sort of think <laughs> my way out of that, you know, be optimistic about it because, um, you know, with the best will in the world, a lot of the, the damage has been done. And of course, better late than never, but it's like the Philippines, you know, when I find I've only been there the once actually, and you know it a lot better than I do. But this was in, this was for the Our Planet thing, and, and it was to, to film the Eagle. So it was only, uh, what was it, two years, three years ago, something like that. But I, I just couldn't believe um, the amount of deforestation that had occurred there as well. And, and in a way, it was almost like a, a snapshot of, of sort of, you know, Southeast Asia in the future, if we're not careful. I, I found it quite sobering. You know, what was it like when you were there? I mean, was there still decent blocks of forest? Well, yeah, that's a really good question, James. And I, I can tell you, um, we were there, you know, we started in 1977 and we were there all the way to 19, well, almost 1980 with some return trips. But during the time when we did most of our filming, uh, it was, it was at the, the high point of the, the commercial logging industry and every road in the Philippines day and night had logging trucks zooming by. Everywhere we went, there was uh, logging operations, and it was uh, it was just depressing as hell. Um, but you know, back then, one of the things that I really noticed that was different between the '70s and the uh, in 2013 was the complete lack of rufous hornbills. Every oh. nest site we found in the '70s had rufous hornbills all around. That's a bird that's going, by the way, it's, it's on its way to extinction too. Uh, yeah. Just like everything else, the forest has been so fragmented there now. Yeah. It's hard yeah. for me to even believe that some of these eagles are hanging on, hanging on those little fragments. Yeah, uh, that's a very interesting observation, definitely. And something I've noticed over the years is uh, with it's exactly the same situation with helmeted hornbills. We used to see them a lot in, in Borneo. Um, and a lot in Sumatra, places like Gunung Lusa, had a really good population of helmeted hornbill. Um, but the last time I went back, I, I didn't even hear one. You know, um, I, I saw one in, in Danum Valley about, uh, about five years ago, four years ago. Um, but the last time I went back to Sumatra, I didn't see any. And that used to be a really good spot for them. And they've got, they've, they've just been hunted out because they've got that solid cask, you know, that can be carved and it's called Hornbill Ivory, isn't it? And it's just, it's been hammered. And the thing is, I, I do wonder sometimes, because like I was saying before, we do, I find myself going back and filming the same sort of species over and over again. Everyone loves an orangutan. I love orangutans. They're incredible things. That's undeniable. But there's a lot of other stuff which isn't nearly as high profile. And I do kind of wonder sometimes whether it is, and not to be on too much of a downer, but I, I think to a certain extent, our whole industry reflects just how narcissistic we are as a species. You know, the, the animals and the species that we show so much interest in, including eagles, I, I think, um, are, are ones that we feel on a subconscious level, perhaps, look or behave a little bit like us we can relate to them you know the forward-facing eyes the 
you know, the open face, you know, the apex predator, all this kind of stuff, these sort of iconic, almost totemic animals. And yet things like hornbills, you know, they're just, no one knows about it and they're just disappearing, you know, and that, and, and then if you go down through the species, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? I mean, I'm not an entomologist, but it makes me wonder what on earth is going on, you know, lower down in the, in the, in the you know, the pecking order. Um, it's quite sobering, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I see that all the time uh, in just about every environment. You know, we, we tend to lose uh, these creatures that, that aren't, as you say, high profile because they just slip away and people yes. are paying attention to them. Mm. And then pretty soon you've got the whole breakdown of the, the mechanics of the ecosystem. And then mm. you've got these, uh, you know, basically hollow forests that may have hmm. trees but they aren't they're not they're lacking the biodiversity yes. lacking some of the some of the creatures that should fill those niches and it, yeah. you know slipping away without people even noticing sometimes it's awful yeah that, that's the thing that's but i've got to i've got to say and um, take this changing the subject slightly just take this opportunity neil to to let you know that um so the first the first time i saw you at work I, it was uh, a, a mate of mine. I was about 12 or 13 years old, okay? <laughs> and a mate of mine who was a falconer, he was just getting in. He got his first kestrel and he was he was just really, he was obsessed, you know, as as you are um, when, when you get into that field, you know. And he um, he was a mate and he said, look, do you want to come around? I've got this this um, video I want to show you. And he told me about this, this thing called a harpy eagle, which I'd never heard about before in my life. And... Um, and he put this knackered old VHS tape into the machine and played it. And there was this sort of, it was a Nat Geo special. And it was showing this bunch of crazy guys climbing up to a harpy eagle nest. And he was wearing it, and this guy wearing a motorcycle helmet, um, getting absolutely hammered <laughs> by the biggest bird I'd ever seen in my life. And, um, and I think, from that moment onwards, I was just absolutely spellbound, read everything I could, um, watched all your films, read everything I could uh, uh, about harpies, you know. I mean, it's kind of easy these days. Everything's on the Internet, isn't it? But but certainly then in the, in the mid 80s, you know, I was sort of, you know, it's these VHSs get handed around between people, you know, and they eventually get completely worn out. So by the time I saw the VHS of you climbing up to that nest and I think it was a a K-pop tree or something. Yeah. All, yeah. All, all, the, all the green, everything was silhouetted, all the greens were running and all the, all the sky was blown out. But I still remember seeing that huge shadow coming in and, and you know, buzzing you. Yeah. That's, um, that was pretty pioneering stuff. Absolutely fantastic stuff. Yeah, you know, I'm so happy and, and glad that, you know, those of us that have been around in the old original first days of natural history filmmaking, I think, you know, things were, that, that was exploration. I mean, those yeah. were real expeditions that were on the, you know, you were on the edge of your seat. You were, you were surviving in the, in the forest and, and not, you had no cell phones, you know, you were communicating still back then, at least way back in the seventies, we were communicating with mail, you know, <laughs> so it would take like four weeks to get a response. You know, we were, sending our film away for, for, uh, for processing. And 
never seeing any of the rushes until we returned. You know, yeah. it's crazy. But, uh, you know, I, I just feel so lucky to have experienced uh, those great times of adventure, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think that was sort of when, when you went out to, to film the Harpies and, and, and then with the Philippines, it, you, you were really on the cusp of something there. And I think, um, you know, it, it's, it's pretty much a different world now in many places. I mean, not everywhere, of course, you know, that's, uh, you know, important to not to forget. There's still plenty of stuff out there, you know, and every time I fly over the Amazon, you know, it's it, it just blows me away, the sheer size of it. But I, I think sort of less we get complacent, um, you, you know. <laughs> you know, I, I'm still working on filling out documentation for risk assessment. There was no risk assessment back then. No. I know. <laughs> Well, yeah. that, that, that brings me on. Well, there's a couple of things that, I, I mean, I'm a happy spectator here, by the way. This is, this is wonderful. Um, the, uh, you mentioned about five nests, Neil, which to, that, obviously, that I'm assuming must have something to do with the, the, the fact that there was still a, a decent amount of forest available because when I when I liaise with Dr. Jason Ibanez, um, obviously head of conservation and research at the Philippine Eagle Foundation, you know, if they find one or two nests at the moment that they're, they're annually they're, they're doing well and they're working with communities in order to do that. So to, to uncover five nests, was that across the three years or was that in one year or people were already finding them before yourself and Bob went out there? What was the situation with that? We were, again, you know, we were sort of pioneers in that, in that field. Um, there was no Philippine Eagle Foundation. There was really nobody, no organization in the Philippines looking for nests. No, nobody was aware. There wasn't a nest found since the, uh, the mid-60s. Um, uh, so when we arrived, we were just like, where do we go, you know? <laughs> so we started working with logging companies thinking, okay, we can get back into the, into the remote areas on the logging roads. And uh, so we split into two different teams, Wolfgang Saab and Bob Kennedy went to one side of our kind of search area, which was actually fairly close to uh, Mount Sinaka area. Actually, into, uh, you know, it was in uh, Manapo National Park. And they found a nest after two months, uh, Wolfgang and, and, uh, and Bob at Tadaya. We called it the Tadaya nest and that was in, in the park. And so we were on the other side of Mindanao in Bislig on a logging operation looking for nest sites. We just sit there and scan and you'd see the thermal, the uh, eagles come up and start soaring at 10, 10 o'clock in the morning. And if you watch them for long enough, we were there for weeks and weeks and weeks trying to get a pattern, you know, we'd see them going into a valley with prey. So anyway, the Tadaya nest was found. So we, we all moved operations to Tadaya, uh, rented a farmhouse from a coffee grower, um, a little cabin and uh, set up hides, built platforms and everything was going great. And then the chick dies at 27 days, it chokes on a bone. The whole project fell apart. We were devastated. What do we do now? So we, two months later, we found another nest. 
this one was right on the edge of a logging operation. And we went to the logging company and begged them, you know, could you please, they had the nest tree marked with blue spray paint. They were going to cut the nest tree. And the director of the, or the, the president of the logging company said, well, we'll do more than that. We won't just pull back operations. We'll set the whole area aside of the sanctuary. And that was great. Oh. So we started filming. But then the slash and burn farmers came in because there was nobody from the logging company to guard the forest. The whole place was on fire. You couldn't even see the nest. There was so much smoke. So at that time, we were working with Marcos, with the, uh, the Marcos Foundation. And we, we told uh, one of Marcos's right-hand men what had happened. And he told Marcos, and Marcos went ballistic and canceled the operation. All that logging, it was uh, Alcantara, all their operations throughout the Philippines. And they, our necks were, our, I mean, they, 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 were wanted, they wanted to cut our heads off. They were, it was ugly. Uh, we were in danger. Uh, we had to have, uh, took weeks and weeks of negotiation with local people to try to sort it out. Uh, you know, they stopped us one time on the road and they said, are you the Philippine Eagle? You know, the Philippine Eagle people, the monkey eating Eagle people back then. Yeah. So, it, I mean, ugly things can happen. And, um, that was that was a bad uh, a bad experience. But so obviously, just for people listening in, Marcos was the then president of the, of the Philippines. What so you know it was it went right to the top. Um, and this is all just to clarify as well. This is all part of the we haven't mentioned it yet. The Bird of Prey movie that you you shot with with Cornell. Um, a lot of this footage or part of this footage, am I right, is included in that. That's, that's right. The, the old archival material, it kind of, the, the film bounces back and forth between the 70s project and the current, you know, uh, project we did in 2013 uh, on 4K high definition. And, you know, it, it, I think it works well because it kind of tells the whole story and it gives you a way to show the deforestation. We have all that, this old archival logging footage and commercial logging is illegal now in the Philippines. There's no forest left anymore. Uh, you know, what's protected in the north, like in Luzon is great and everything. They're still doing some logging up there, but by and large commercial logging is finished. And the, obviously the net, we've mentioned it, or sorry, you've mentioned it a couple of times as well, the, the name change of the eagle. So from the, the monkey eating eagle, to the, the Philippine eagle and the national bird. Just touch on how that, because you had a hand in that as well. We, we can't not forget that. Yeah, we were invited to the palace uh, with Imelda and Ferdinand Marcos. And uh, we actually had Bill Walton, the basketball player over basketball, because we were doing a show for a show called American Sportsman that, used, that would highlight conservation projects. And they brought six foot, 11 Bill Walton over to the Philippines. And so Marcos was all excited to meet him, it gave us the opportunity to talk a little bit about the Eagle while we were in his office. And uh, Bob Kennedy said, you know, that people are confused about the monkey eating Eagle because they think it's a monkey eating an Eagle. And it also 
uh, <laughs> it, people that like monkeys were angry about the eagle eating monkeys. So Marcos agreed totally that from then on we'll call it the Philippine eagle. So that was how the, the name changed. Brilliant. And when when did it become the national bird? Did you was that much sooner or longer after that? I think it became a national bird. I think in '98 or so. Uh, I'm not sure about that actually. What going the going back to the '70s, '40s? Just something I've got to talk about uh, or I want to bring up. Um, people can actually. I think we're, we're doing something along with the Philippine Eagle Foundation. So if people make a donation to the fundraiser, they get access to a 45 minute um, version of the of the Bird of Prey movie, which if, if you haven't seen it, you need to you need to watch it because it's brilliant. And obviously our planet Netflix, ver, you know, the Philippine Eagle episode um, is available. I think that's for free. That's available on YouTube um, as well. So so people can get a real fill. But the the 70s footage the bit where i nearly jumped off the couch was when you're you're running through you're essentially running through the trees skimming through the trees because you went up and measured the chick didn't you i think this was the the chick that died if i remember rightly and i was like wow look at them there go through the trees almost like monkeys really running so that's i was i was so jealous i was like this is incredible to see well, that was uh, what we called the Amabel nest. That was the second nest we found after the Tadaya nest young bird died. And we had a tram set up across. I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah. And Bob Kennedy, every 10 days, he would go to the nest and weigh the eaglet so that we could just, uh, you know, monitor its its growth rate. Um, and he was attacked violently, you know, and James, I think you'll relate to this. I mean, every pair of eagles is different and you have to kind of read and get the feel of how the male and female are different and how aggressive they are, or how afraid they are of people. Well, that female was wickedly aggressive, which was a good thing from the standpoint of she's not about to abandon the nest. Uh, whenever an eagle attacks you and actually physically hits you, it's very unlikely that they're going to fly off, bugger off, like a golden eagle might. So, you know, all those things have to be taken into consideration when you're working with different pairs. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. But that was amazing because Bob Kennedy would, I mean, we're talking about 140 feet off the ground, pulling yourself across on carabiners. We didn't. You know, we, we, we were just barely on the edge of taking advantage of the technology back then that is available <laughs> today. I know. <laughs> we were still spiking up trees back then. It was crazy. <laughs> well, you can... It's funny. The, the first few jobs I did, um, I, I took spikes out. I took irons um, out. This was in, in the Congo. And I, 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 I got out of that habit pretty quick, apart from the fact that obviously, you know, as you probably were, you know, referring to it damages the tree. But I, I found that I quickly learned that whereas before a producer or, or you know, a schedule would, would expect you to sort of climb and rig a, a tree a day, for example, you know, because you've got spikes on and everything is, is based around sort of momentum and inertia and you want to get up and get the job done as quick as possible. I was doing like six trees a day 
and dead. I mean, I could barely had enough energy to, you know, eat, eat the plate of beans at the end of the day. And then I'd fall into a coma and then wake up the next morning and do it all again. So I got out of that habit pretty quick. And even, I mean, I'm 46 now, but I was doing that when I was 24, 25. But even then, it was punishing, absolutely brutal to climb with spikes in that sort of environment. Yeah. That so, is, um, yeah. That's awesome that you're a spiker. Uh, when I was <laughs> on that trip in the Philippines, we I brought spikes, the same spikes yeah. I used in 1974. <laughs> and actually... I used them a couple of times in the Philippines to do a quick job, get up a small tree that you couldn't necessarily shoot a rope up, you know, because yeah. there's no limb or anything. Yeah. And God, I mean, we were joking about it. maybe a ch chapter in a book will be still spiking. You know what I mean? It's crazy. <laughs> and, and spiking is so dangerous, really. If you don't know how to yeah. do it right and you have the angle, yeah. you, you, you know, the spikes shoot out and you can slide down a tree get slivered, yeah. spike your calf. Yeah. yeah. Or you, you can, you know, on this last, one of the last trees I spiked, uh, ants attacked me like crazy. And I oh, no. was covered with ants and I I was taking the rope. They were coming down. Actually, I, once I got spiked up, then I connected to a rope so I could come, I could just rappel down. Yeah. And I was pushing the ants up with my hand and they were showering down on Skip the other cinematographer, and he's taking his shirt off and going crazy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. But, um, I mean, you spike, don't you, Jimmy? I mean, I, I filmed you spiking up to that goshawk nest, you know, yeah, um, a few years ago. Spikers. <laughs> Yeah, well, we're part of spikers. It's quite funny, actually, because uh, like listening to you two and, and following both of your work and, you know, the, the, in my eyes, obviously, James, you've written the book, The Man Who Climbs Trees. And, and, oh. um, and, and you know, I, I was out, my monitoring season started yesterday. You'll laugh at this. James, you'll laugh at this. Um, and I was out with a friend of mine who's actually, he's only ever seen me go down because we monitor peregrines, but we were doing ravens yesterday because they're the, the first, the early breeders in, in the, the monitoring season. So I had to go up a beech tree because, because um, so it's the first time. Anyway, I pulled myself up into a tree. First time I've probably climbed. Well, I didn't really do any climbing last year because of COVID. And when I got yeah. down, we checked the nest and that was all done and and john the first thing he said to me was wow you made that look really hard work <laughs> <laughs> but it but it is i i had, to, <laughs> I had someone take a look at a tree that i'd spiked up once and he said man it looks like a bear's been up there <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, this wasn't. I wasn't. This was a beech tree, so I didn't have spikes. on. I got a line up, and I was. I was hiking my like. You can't. I can't call it hip thrusting because it wasn't hip thrusting. It was. It was more like a. I don't know. A pig on a pinata or something swinging around. I was. <laughs> so, you guys, I can relate to. I mean, exactly what you're both talking about. Um, you know, I can remember so many times when I would be up in a tree struggling, you know, doing something that required all my energy. Yeah. Maybe I'm trying to get onto a platform or I'm holding out a piece of wood and trying to lash it on to get the, the platform started. And there's somebody down on the ground saying, what, what's taking you so long down? Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, it would Classic. just drive me crazy hearing people on the ground 
in another world yeah. out there where you're up here, you're up where yeah. you are trying to survive. You know what I mean? It's yeah. great. <laughs> That's so true. That's so true. And I, I think, I think um, it, I don't think that people who have, have never climbed in that environment, I don't think they, I just don't think they appreciate the amount of energy and focus that it, that it takes. And I find it, it doesn't get any easier. Okay. Some of the technology and the, the tech and climbing gear that's out there is, is great now, but in a way it almost gets too complicated for me. I'm, I'm sort of stuck in a, a, a bit of a sort of um, a bit of a time warp on the kit front. I, I think, well, I'm sort of lingering around 2002. That's, that's where I'm at. <laughs> the, the tech that I was at and everything that's happened since, you know, in, in terms of the real yeah. technical sort of rescue side of things, I, I sort of have left sort of wash over me because I, it's just slow and steady wins the day, I, I find. And, and a lot of the climbers that I work with nowadays are so fast, are so gifted and they go out and practice and they're they're so fluid around the trees and so quick um but yeah i i prefer to stay in my comfort zone and just you know move through it methodically and and get it get it done because it, it's, you know on top of everything else it, it's just a tool isn't it ultimately to get you into position and uh, and that's when the real work starts isn't it when you pick up the camera and you start really you know, in investing and 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 going for it. Um, so yeah, I, it, it's kind of like putting the cart before the horse. Really, getting too bogged down in all of that kit and stuff. Um, yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. The comfort level is really important thing. That's for sure. And yeah, you can get not only with climbing gear, but also in camera gear, you can become bogged down with so many fiddly gadgets that you end up never using. Oh, James is, James is back. There we are, I'm back, yeah. I don't know what happened there. <laughs> well, just talking about, obviously, camera gear, platforms, filming Eagle Nest, because obviously this is something you can both relate to. What's, what sort of things are you looking at when you're going to... Uh, Harpy Eagle Nessa. Obviously, you've got you know what your remit is. You know we want to get probably this and these shots. Sorry, I'm not, you can tell I'm not a director, obviously, or a producer. But what from from a cameraman's point of view, both of your views, what sort of things are you are you looking at? Because you're obviously having to think about obviously your own safety, getting up into the tree. You've got the equipment as well, getting the shot, and also the the birds as well, the, the welfare of the birds as well. So, uh, and Neil, as you touched on before, when it comes to the Philippine eagle, which you both both worked on, one of the most probably the rarest eagle in the world, um, one of the rarest birds in the world. Um, so yeah, what sort of things are going through your head? It's quite a big question. James, you want to take that first? Yeah, sure. Um... It, it is a it is a good question, Jimmy, because there's a lot of dynamics to deal with there. A lot of dynamics. There's um, so you've got to think of proximity to the nest, and there's always a conflict of interest because, from a camera point of view, you want to be as close as possible uh, within reason. Um, but from the safety of the bird point of view, um, and also to a lesser extent, you know, your own safety with certain species, um, there has to be a line. But until you get to know that bird, and as Neil was saying earlier, you know, all these birds are individual. They have very different um, sort of tolerance parameters. 
until you get to know that bird, um, it's very difficult to know where that line is. Um, and uh, a lot also depends on whether they're on eggs or on chicks or, you know, and all this kind of stuff, because with the best research in the world, you know, it's not always possible to time your trip to the other side of the planet at the exact moment you want it to be. I mean, the first harpy nest I went up on, we were sure um, they had chicks. We got up there and there were two eggs. I was really freaked out. I was like, oh, Jesus, you know, she's, she's off the eggs. I'm up the tree. She's been off for 20 minutes now, you know, and, and then the pressure starts and you feel your, your heart in your throat and, and you're like, oh, my God, well, I've got a choice. I either bail out now and come back and put this poor bird through this disruption again, or um, I really count the minutes and I try and get it done now and, and get down out of the... So there's a lot of other layers of dynamics. And certainly with um, getting a, a viable camera position, um, I, I find personally that the I ideal is to be level, if not just slightly above the nest. Um, I would say, you know, a maximum of, of 20 meters away, ideally. Um, and I, I tend to put the platform around the back of the tree I'm in, strapped to the stem, so that um, it, I can sort of shoot past the trunk so that the trunk can uh, camouflage to a certain extent. I mean, you're never gonna hide from an eagle. They're always gonna know you're there, but so, I, so at least I can ascend and descend using the trunk of the tree I'm in as cover. And um, so that's another thing that I try and put in, um, factor in. Um, but sometimes, you know, you get to a spot and I find that, the, you know, the producer or whoever will say, there's loads of trees, there's a forest, you know, you, you, you're spoiled for choice. There's loads of trees um, to put the platform in. You know, what about this one? What about that one? What about, and all I really need when I get to the base of that tree is an hour of total silence to be on my own with a pair of binoculars so that I can just systematically work through every single tree in ever increasing circles moving out from the nest. Um, and, and then you, you'd be amazed at how quick um, the statistics sort of go down. You might, you might originally have say a dozen trees that look promising, but by the end of it, by the time you put distance, um, rigability um, in there for, for the platform and all the rest of it into the equation, you're lucky, quite frankly, if you've still got one option left. Um, so it can be quite an intense thing. And of course, as I was saying before, a lot of this is done before you've even had a chance to get to know the birds and very often before you've even seen the adult birds. Um, it might be day one or two in the field. So very often I find myself getting towards the end of a shoot where I actually feel like I've learned something about the behavioral patterns of, of what I'm filming. And looking back in hindsight and reassessing and thinking, oh, you know, if only I'd just, you know, move the platform a bit around here, or if only I knew that that was, the, if only I knew that the male was always going to come in from the left like that, I would have, you know, all of these different things. Um, so it's a constant sort of learning experience as, as you go through. Um, yeah, so there's a lot to think about, um, as, I, as I'm sure, you, you, you know, you've experienced all of that ad infinitum, Neil. I mean, it's just endless, isn't it? Well, James, you, you covered that really well. And I can add a little bit to that. And I'll probably be repeating uh, some of what you said, but 
I'll give you an example. Uh, the last nest that we filmed, the Sanaka nest in, in the Philippines in 2013, the, um, it was still, it was still uh, the female was still incubating, the pair was still incubating. And it was a really, really wet, drippy, muddy forest, very steep. And, you know, we went in there and the female left the nest uh, and we started to like quickly, we had to determine exactly where we were gonna try to put a ground blind on a slope. Um, and it turned out to be a hundred yards away, a hundred meters away. And we built that uh, spending maybe 30, 40 minutes a day for about three or four days until we had a kind of a platform jutted out of the side of this very steep cliff and you could only see a hole there was a just a, a little kind of hole in the canopy where you could you could shoot through there was no panning no getting the eagles coming or going they were just out no. on the nest so we spent that was the first uh, location and the eagles were pretty wary every time we'd approach on the ground they would they would leave the egg no, um, go Anyway, after yeah. a couple of days in that uh, filming from that position, the, the egg hatched, and then we decided, okay, now the next step is a slightly closer high or blind. So we we tended to name them after the color of trees. So the next one was called the white tree, and that was <laughs> seventy meters away, and it was, you know had a much better view and you had a slight possibility of getting birds coming in, but it was a very closed canopy around the nest. And then we, uh, we started to plan what we wanted to call the, well, which we ended up calling the close blind. And that was 20, yard, 20 meters away, hmm. the distance that you thought was a good one. And that was a nightmare because, uh, I ended up doing all the work myself. We had a rigger, a guy named Kike Arnall, a Venezuelan, but he couldn't he couldn't be there at the critical times. No. So I was doing all the construction myself, um, and we were limiting the construction to about 45 minutes to an hour, where I'd go up and I'd maybe put one beam up, you know, boldly at the end of the tree. My wife's on the ground and skipped. He's down on the ground saying, hey, 45 minutes is up. You got to come down. <laughs> so it took forever to get that hide done. And uh, they were, it was raining a lot. And finally, it was finished. And we started filming out of that one. And that's when we got the intimacy. We were right there. Lovely. Uh, and then we had other platforms that we, we constructed after realizing the flight patterns and the fav favorite branches that the eagles were using and it worked out beautifully. And all we had like six different vantage points. But by the end of that project, the female would, feed, would be feeding the young and you could repel out of the close blinds, she wouldn't even look at us. So they became habituated. That's yeah. so cool. I, I was going to ask you about that, whether you'd had experience of that. That is fantastic to hear you say that because um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced with the goshawks that I've just been filming. And, and so I've filmed on goshawk nest two or three times now. And each time <clears throat> um, when I sort of go up early in the season, 
um, when, when she's sort of sitting on eggs. Um, if I'm really, really slow, um, certainly with this last, this last one, you know, she'll hunker down and just sort of look through the lattice work of twigs on the top of the nest and sort of glare at me. Um, but as the season goes on, um, I'm, I'm convinced that they're sort of, uh, well, in, intelligent enough to rationalize the fact and to recognize you as an individual. I'm convinced of this, that a lot of these birds of prey are like, oh, it's you again. Well, you know, I don't like you and I really don't want you here, but um, I've got these eggs in this chick, so I'll tolerate you. Just don't do anything stupid. And as each day progresses, I find that, you know, so for, for example, this, this last goshawk nest, you know, I was paranoid, absolutely paranoid about getting up there in the dark, getting down in the dark, doing a, you know, a full sort of, but by the end of the season, um, I could risk sort of bailing out halfway through the day. And she might throw me a dirty look, you know, and, you know, but, you know, she'd just stay there on, on the branch next to the desk, uh, on, on, next to the nest and just watch me leave the wood. But the interesting thing and the sort of control that sort of underlined the fact that made me realize that that was actually happening, this sort of almost like a self-habituation process in a way that she was sort of decided to put herself through, was that if anyone else, any other member of the public came into the wood, she'd be gone. And, yeah. and I wouldn't even see or hear that person. And she'd, she'd just, she'd, there'd be no drama about it. She'd half get up and she'd just roll off the back of the nest silently and she'd be a shadow, she'd just disappear. And literally like five minutes, 15 minutes later, I would eventually hear two people talking as they come down the track and move through and they had no idea I was there, they had no idea the nest was there. But she knew from the very moment they came into the wood that they were strangers and, you know, and she behaved differently. And, and that, for me, was some of the most rewarding experiences I think I've ever had on any raptor nest, because um, I'm not suggesting in any way that um, there's any sort of, you know, relationship there at all. But the fact that, you know, had done <clears throat> something right in as much as hadn't completely freaked her out to the point where she'd abandoned and had taken it slow and steady enough so that she had gotten gradually habituated and that was a measure of the success for me um even more so in a way than the uh, than the shots that it came back with just the knowledge that you know we'd done it right we hadn't compromised their safety and we hadn't pushed too hard too fast and everyone walked away with you know a, a, a job well done so i think that habituation process is a very important part of it and it's really interesting for me to hear you say that you took so much time moving those those heights forward because i'm always pushing for more time in the field and it, it gets kind of difficult doesn't it if someone is re expecting results quickly um but of course it's an investment all that time at the beginning is an investment towards the intimacy of shots that you you know you suddenly get two-thirds of the way through the the trip and it's like it's like you're vacuuming up the shots you have a day where you, it's just relentless. You get so much good stuff, but you wouldn't have got that if you hadn't invested all of those weeks beforehand. Absolutely. And you know, that slow and steady and thinking things out carefully and enough time in the field are critical elements. Today, in this day and age, you know, everybody has these short 
crazy, not everybody, but some, so many of the productions have these ridiculously short project mm -hmm. durations. Like, what can you get in three days? You know, you, filming these large forest eagles is a major full-blown expedition, yeah. period. And, you yeah. know, if you're, if you're, no matter what you're doing, somebody has, you know, if, you, if, if you're in a situation where somebody else is building the hide, maybe that's a different where you could actually climb up a rope, maybe go in the blind or the hide for a couple of days and get something. But if you're the one that's setting it all up, it's a major expedition. Yeah. Agreed. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and it's very interesting. I find that the production companies that are prepared to, well, not only production companies, but you know, who, whoever is sort of um, commissioning the project, it, it's it pays dividends you know and it's the people that are prepared to to really invest in that time that get the goods at the end of the day um but it's also very important i find to be able to to be able to just um be confident enough to go at your own pace and rhythm as well i think and that has taken me a long long time to learn is to is to um is to appreciate the fact that I might not know anything about anything else, and believe me, I don't, but I do know about climbing a tree and what it takes to set up. And there are so many different ways of doing it that you, you have to find your own comfort zone and you have to be confident with it before you even embark on something uh, as such a serious undertaking, I, I find. Yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah, it, it's interesting to speak to two people that have experienced, you know, what I've lived all my life. So, well, well, Neil, Neil something me and something another question I want to put to you. I'm keeping an eye on the time um, that me and James have discussed about. Obviously, you know, there's the footage that you shot in the '70s, uh, the the Bird of Prey movie that you did with Cornell. Um, for the Philippine Eagle Foundation and, and James's work on our planet uh, with the Philippine Eagle. So there's, there's been very little exposure for this eagle in terms of productions and, and screen time. Do you, do you see that changing? Do you, me, me and obviously James have discussed when, when he'd been out to the Philippines while I was out there at the same time about obviously the harp eagle, there's been, there's been a lot of work done on harp eagles in terms of film production do you see it changing for the philippine eagle now or do you see it being does that worry you even um I think it, it, if anything it does worry me a little bit um you know i if, if put it this way if somebody came up to my door here on my farm and said hey i want to film a red tail hawk nest that i see on your property i'd say no because i've done this all my life and I know the kind of mistakes you, you can make. And I, ha I have a lot of experience with it. And I still make mistakes. Uh, I don't think there's enough Philippine eagles around out there to afford uh, the risk. Uh, it, it's already, there's already a lot of risk just with bird watchers going in and being competitive and still photographers, you know, and pushing and getting in and you know, the more nest sites that are exploited in some ways, um, it brings up this whole problem in the Philippines with people 
wanting rewards and being jealous and this and that and the other thing. And um, I do think that maybe we, we've been on the, the, the Philippine Eagle Foundation is quite interested in, in a possible nest camp. But no, the, the, the Filipino people who are tuning into the nest camp have to be, how, how would you say it? They would have to be seasoned enough to understand the brutalities that they might see in the wild. And the, the yeah. tragedies that might occur, and they they have to steer away from being anthropomorphic about it. Mm. But in the Philippines, there's a lot of anthropomorphism. Uh, uh, very interesting. Yeah. And, and yeah. I, I just, boy, you know, I, I wish the, the eagle was in better shape. I wish the the forests mm. weren't so fragmented. But I, I don't know. I think it's a it's a rare such a rare bird and the footage is just so rare and hard to come by. I can't imagine people flocking there and even getting permission mm -hmm. because everything has to be done through the, you know, either the local indigenous people and or the Philippine Eagle Foundation. Mm -hmm. I think too much attention might be damaging in that kind of way. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I, I, and I suppose that's why sort of the work that you've done is, is so important as well. And, and the fact that you're still involved with the Philippine Eagle Foundation and it, it communicating with them because they, you know, in my experience that, that they need people like you who can support them. And even Netflix, you know, I worked with, with James, we chatted before and I'm by far no expert on the Philippine Eagle, but I talked with James and I was very impressed with the, the sort of sensitivities that Silverback Productions went to went around with when it came to to working with the philippine eagle foundation and jason and, and yeah. so i think it's really important that they've got people like like you especially neil on their on their side to 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 steer them in the right direction um i just want to touch on talk about the sort of the philippine eagle foundation because hopefully people have picked up on that that neil you you've been involved in this before the the conception um of the foundation and without going through the, the history of, of that people can read up on that on on the internet what what sort of thing what do you what do you feel is going to be really beneficial for for supporting the philippine eagle and the wild population going forwards what do you, what do you think really needs to be the focus well you know the philippine eagle foundation are really the the the, the true boots on the ground in the philippines and everything that we've done in recent years uh, has been through them and with their assistance. And without them, it would have been impossible to, to make the film, the last film we made. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, uh, resurgence of international funding, kind of similar to what they got when Pagasa was hatched. Uh, and by the way, that bird died. I don't know if- Yeah, we saw it, yeah. Very sad. Um, they, at that time, when, when Pegaso was hashed, it was such a big deal that they were getting funding from Germany and the UK and Australia and every, we got to get that happening again. And unfortunately, COVID has kind of like, everything's been dead in the water. Um, but I, I was just uh, talking to you a little bit before uh, uh, James came on, uh, Jimmy, that uh, I feel like I want to get back in the saddle again. I want to use what we've done 
to, to raise funds to try to get some big corporations back in there to fund the Philippine Eagle Foundation to, I mean, they have on the drawing boards new facilities they want to build. And what I would love to see is total government support in the Philippines. I mean, it's their national bird. They've, there, there's plenty of funds in the Philippines. We just got to like, they've got to tap into it. There's got to be, uh, this corporation in the Philippines, there's individuals in the Philippines that could fund the entire project with pocket change. Right. <laughs> you know, it, it's one of these countries where, you know, there's immense wealth and there's immense poverty and everything in between. Um, I, I just, you know, I think the Philippine Eagle Foundation needs uh, state-of-the-art incubators. They need an injection of new blood. They, we have to, my wife is involved actually. We're trying to get together biologists and field workers from all over the country that can pour expertise into the Philippines and maybe go on sabbaticals there and spend time. You know, bring people like like yourselves over there to train, like Joe Atkinson, you know, bring him over there to train people proper ways to handle the eagles with the right equipment. Anyway, I, I think I think there's a lot of room. Uh, I think there's a lot of opportunities and, you know, thank God, Jimmy and James, that you're, you guys are really both very, very uh, concerned and involved. Yeah. Uh, what about you, James? Go on. Just uh, I can't leave you out. What, what your experiences or thoughts on the, the conservation of the eagle, obviously, with your trip? I mean, mine, mine was just a very um, short snapshot, uh, a real sort of vignette, a window on, on that world, really. And I don't feel that I can really speak with any gravitas or authority, certainly not to the level that Neil is, really. I don't have that background in in the Philippine story, the Eagle story. But, but what did really strike me when I was there um, was the fact that, um, you know, where, where this eagle was, where the nest was, was in um, very obviously a patch of forest which had been left there by default. It was on such a steep slope above a ravine that there's no way that they could have gotten in there to log it. I mean, the only option there would have been something like heli logging or something. You know, they just couldn't have uh, gotten the machinery in, which, of course, is why the forest was left there. Um, and I, I, I just, I, I don't know. I mean, in your opinion, do you think these eagles would take to man-made nests that were put up um, in, in potentially viable areas? I mean, you know, like other species, like an osprey or something would... Would would, an, would a Philippine eagle behave that way? I mean, is that even viable? You know, James, I, I kind of feel that they're so specialized. Yet, yeah. you know, uh, then Jason, uh, with their radio telemetry or their satellite telemetry, they're finding that some of the eagles cover vast areas of just denuded landscape and then find these little pockets of forest like you described and that's exactly where the Sanaka nest was found it was just a little patch of forest actually the communities were safe were protecting it because it was a watershed that was vital 
Uh, I don't know how adaptable they would be. To, to, you know, mm. I think they're a little too specialized. Um, yeah, I can believe it. I, I mean, it's, it's interesting. If I may just throw one sort of other observation that I had, um, you know, how credible it is, I, I don't know. But it, it did occur to me that all my life, until I actually saw a Philippine eagle, in the world, all my life, I put the harpy and the Philippine eagle in the same bracket. I had tied them with the same brush by association. Big, charismatic forest eagles. Yeah, um, occasionally they, they do eat monkeys, obviously, you know, and, and all of that. Um, I just assumed that the Philippine eagle was uh, going to be similar to a harpy. And I was amazed at how different they were. I was absolutely um, amazed, actually, at, at how absolutely specialised that um, Philippine eagle is and, and what I saw. And, okay, superficially, um, they might look similar, but I found that, for example, the harpy was all about the feet and the talons and, you know, whereas the Philippine was more about the beak and... That, I, I don't know, it's just difficult to quantify, um, but so utterly different. And then that, that got me thinking about the, um, the level of vulnerability between the two birds. And obviously um, they, they both have pretty similar sort of basic requirements in terms of you know, the large areas of forest and things. But I, I've seen, as I'm sure you have as well, I've seen harpies nesting in Kapok trees completely surrounded by manioc plantations and things, yeah. you know, and, it, and it's interesting with the Philippines as well, you know, from what you're saying and, and cross-referencing it with the location that we found ours in as well, was, um, I say we found, the one I was shown, taken to, of course. Um, I find, you know, if we can just meet these birds in the middle and just give them the very bare minimum that they need, they, they, obviously want to survive they they can do it you know it doesn't need to be and I just wonder sometimes whether or from the conservation point of view a lot of people kind of give up before they even start because they assume that there aren't absolutely vast enormous you know <clears throat> continental sized tracts of forest left anymore so therefore the eagles can't survive but I'm constantly amazed by the ad ad adaptability of some of these birds and, and what they can actually not tolerate, but what they can, you know, we're just pushing them back into these recesses and corners and they can make a go of it, but there is a limit. I don't know what I'm trying to say, I'm rambling now, but I was, you know what I mean? <laughs> I, I, I know exactly what you mean. And, um, you know, it really boils down to educating people it, it, it's hard to believe in the philippines there's still people that don't know what the eagle is no matter how far back into the into the boondocks they still don't know what it is so i think you know the philippine eagle foundation working with the local people out there hammering away trying to educate people that's a vital thing that's got to continue yeah but then again it relates to what i was saying before about you know do we want more coverage of eagles we want crews going in there and i just don't think that'll that maybe mm. isn't the answer but but to take what we already have 
we already have lots of information about the eagle. We've got stunning photography of the eagle. Yeah. If I went back to do more work, I would profile Jason's work with the indigenous. Yes, people. yes, you know, absolutely. Kind of, yeah, well we said. I wanted to go to a nest. We already yeah. have it. We have all that material. Yeah. Um, I think the eagle's got a chance, but I, I think it's vital to keep it breeding in captivity and to have satellite breeding projects in other countries in case an epidemic comes in, a virus or whatever yes. comes out. And, yeah. you know, let's just pray and hope that in the future, in the Philippines, I mean, people are starting now to try to make corridors of replanted forests. They've got to make sure they plant indigenous trees and not alien yeah. trees. Eucalyptus. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and I think, I mean, there is hope in, in bridging mm. to what you said, uh, James, about how the, the eagles can adapt a certain uh, extent, to a certain extent. They can find yeah. these little fragments. They can maybe hunt in the periphery a little bit. Mm. And if they're left alone, they're protected, not shot, and the habitat comes back a bit, you know. Mm. I would have thought yeah. 40 years ago they'd be gone today. From what I saw. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I did some work a few years ago with uh, Californian condors in Arizona, Vermilion uh, uh, Cliffs. And um, I, I was only told afterwards that that one chick that we'd been filming was the only one to have been successfully raised in the whole of Arizona that, that year, wow. uh, which was pretty sobering and freaked me out a little bit. If I'd have known that beforehand, I, I think I would have thought twice. <laughs> would have been a lot more nervous than I was. But what, what's interesting there, the thing that I found so pitiful and horrendous was just the fact that it was direct threat from lead poisoning from uh, the hunters. That, and, and the guy we were working with from the Peregrine Fund, he drew an elk ticket every year. He went out and hunted. But, you know, the, the point is he was prepared to use copper ammunition. And there was so much pushback from the hunting fraternity that considered it an infringement of their rights to use lead. And this, this bird, I mean, that is, is cause and effect. This bird is on the brink of extinction, you know, suffering because of that. Exactly. And, um, and I, just, I just find it sort of beggar's belief sometimes that we just can't get our act together enough to meet these species and to just give them one final chance and hold our hand out and just give them the helping hand, even when it's as minimal as, as just, you, you know, not logging a, a, a patch of forest that the, the, that the eagle is in. But the, the reason why I'm going off on this sort of tangent a little bit is just picking up on something you said a moment ago, which made me think about the whole sort of restoration of forest. And I think a lot of European perspective is slightly sort of stemmed by the, the you know, um, preconceived notion that tropical forest behaves the way the European deciduous forest does, that if you chop it all down, there's still a seed bank. You know, you, all you have to do is stand back and watch the same species and diversity come up again because the, the seeds can lie dormant in the soil for 10, 20, 30 years. But we all know the tropical forest is not like that. You know, UV will will kill all the exposure, will kill all the bacteria. You know, all the, you know, a lot of the fruit and seeds is is very short lived because the amount of humidity and pathogens and fungi and all that sort of stuff. 
So I think picking up on what you just referred to there is, is absolutely critically important for this idea of restoration of forests in a place like the Philippines, where you forest is not forest, not all greenery is the same. You can't just plant eucalyptus, you know, um, that will mature in 30 or 40 years and expect that to be a solution for something like, like the Philippine eagle, you know. Um, yeah, so, so the whole thing, when you stand and sort of sit back and look at it, is almost overwhelming, isn't it? So, which comes full circle right back to providing support for the people who do know what they're doing out there, people like Jason and the, the foundation, and to just trust them, basically, trust them to put the resources and to deal with it um, the way that um, their culture requires, um, which is very often hearts and minds first, isn't it? I mean, that's... You know, you have to. Uh, you, know. you know, there is. I, I think there is uh, some room for optimism, especially when we were in the Philippines in the 70s. The Holy Grail was to find a nest in Luzon. Now we know they're nesting in Luzon. Nobody's <laughs> got a really good handle on the numbers in Luzon. Apparently, I, I haven't been up to those areas. Um, but apparently the, the forest is really, really difficult to work in. Uh, it's hard to get around. It, it, there's a lot of good secondary growth coming up. Um, so, I mean, there may be more eagles in Luzon than, than, we, than we think. And that, that's a good, that's good, really good. And Samar and Leyte, Leyte probably doesn't have very many, but Samar may have still you know, I wouldn't say a significant number, but some eagles, some pairs that are making it. I don't know, it's a, it, it's a hard thing to inventory, that's for sure, it really is. Yeah. yeah. You know, you were, you were talking about the differences uh, also, James, between the harpy and the Philippine eagle. The Philippine eagle soars on a regular basis and the harpy does not, as you yes, know. Yes, of course, yeah. Amazing difference. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. And I, I, I often wonder why that is. Um, have, have, you, have you any thoughts on that? Why that would be? I think, I think the harpy is, a, is like a battering ram. You know, those massive feet and legs, you know, the way they take a sloth off the side of a tree or a vine. Yeah. Wham! Philippine eagle, long legs, beak shaped like a hornbill nest slit. I've seen them go up often to uh, cavities and reach down inside. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's almost sort of, um, that's almost like sort of goshawk behavior, isn't it? That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, that the harpy is so much heavier set, but still, I mean, the Philippine eagle, a big female Philippine eagle is a big bird. I know. I, uh, it's funny. I mean, it's a bit of a schoolboy analogy, but whenever I think of them, when I came away from that trip to the Philippines, you know, I, it just occurred to me that both these birds are supreme heavyweights, but, you know, the harpies, the Tyson, and yeah. the Philippines is the Muhammad Ali. Exactly. They're just, they're just exactly. getting a similar job done, but just slightly differently, and they've both got completely different styles about doing it, you know. A good analogy, <laughs> a good analogy, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to uh, I'm going to jump in. Just uh, I've got 
I'm just conscious of the time. I, I mean, I could sit here all day. This is wonderful. I could. <laughs> we've, got to, we've got to try to do this again. Yeah, well, we, we yeah. will have to yeah, do this. I feel like we yeah. just got started. I know. I know. <laughs> I'm just conscious that, yeah, of, uh, of time. Only for, for people listening as well and, and for the both of you as well. We've all got, we've all got lives as well. Um, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to ask one more question for everyone. Uh, each of you, Neil. I don't even know how you're going to answer this question, but I'll I'll ask it anyway. Um, maybe I'll start with my example. So the the question was going to be like your, um, if you can, Neil and J James as well. I'll come out with mine. Uh, your pinch me moment with with a Philippine eagle, Neil. The the reason I, I you've probably got hundreds of them. Mine was when I was when I got taken to the to the hide when I on my second visit and I'm sat in the hide and and it's wonderful you know this huge tree nest chick in the nest and I think we probably spent a, a good half a day in the hide watching the chick and the pinch me moment was and bearing in mind I'd met and worked with the eagles the the in captivity so i'd been up close had one on, sat on my arm the year before the the previous trip but the pinch me moment was ron the biologist was sat outside the hide on the bank and he just whispered the mum's coming in and i i remember looking out the hide as this adult flew over the top of the hide and alighted on the nest and I mean, I've I've never experienced anything like that. I I could have died and gone to heaven when that happened. Um, <laughs> it was just as the, listening to you both talk about harp eagles, which I've actually never seen a harp eagle um, compared to Philippine eagles. There's just a presence about them. There's something. There's some. They're like the for me. They're like the Marilyn Monroe of eagles. Really, they walk <laughs> and everyone just looks at them and thinks, yeah. That's something else. But anyway, that's that's my that was my pinch me moment. Um, James, what's yours? And then we'll come to Neil because Neil's probably got about a hundred. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'm going to be cheeky and, and recount two. So oh, the okay. first, um, the first was um, we we were lucky actually when we were there filming for Silverback for our planet. Um, we got very lucky. Um, good research and all of that um, from the guys. Um, but we got there when when the chick was right on the verge of fledging and it was effectively being starved out of the nest by its parents who would drop off a, a fruit bat or a snake once in a while. And the chick would sort of pick this fruit bat up and <laughs> it was a, a, with utter disdain, you know, sort of pick it up and then spit it out. And then a day later, you know, lower itself to actually have to eat this thing. But the writing was on the wall. It, it was going to have to take the jump at some point. And, and to watch it, sort of edging out along the branch, um, trying to get a handle of balancing on these muckle great feet with these talons that kept getting in the way, um, you know, flapping the wings, trying to re regain balance. And the pinch me moment for me was the day when it was a very hot day. And I think what happened is thermals rose pretty early and it sucked quite a strong, stiff breeze in up through the, the, um, the ravine. And as soon as that breeze blew consistently, the eagle, there was just no doubt. There was no hesitation in it. In it. So it just locked on. It went kind of rigid. It locked on, turned around, head into the breeze, opened its wings and just floated up off of the branch. It knew exactly what to do. 
and the breeze died and then it landed again perfectly shook its feathers and went and went back to being a juvenile again or you know about but that for me was a real pinch me moment and, and the other moment was um finally seeing the male drop off some food and seeing just how much bigger the the female chick was compared to her dad and seeing the fact that her dad quite frankly was absolutely terrified and couldn't get out of the nest quick enough afterwards i mean the, the the chick aggressively snatched the food off and drove the male off of the nest who sort of shrugged and looked back over his shoulder at his daughter as if to say huh, is that all the thanks i get and then disappeared and i never saw him again <laughs> such charismatic birds <laughs> neil your turn i've got a number of them but i can uh, tell you one that i'll never forget um this is on the first project in in the 70s and I was with Bob Kennedy and one of the other, I think I was, we were with Wolfgang Saul. We went to the island of Samar and the eagle hadn't been spotted in Samar for, you know, officially for decades. And we were sitting on the side of a logging slope, a uh, 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 logging road. We were there for probably four or five hours. And all of a sudden, I see a movement with binoculars. I look, we see a Philippine eagle. And then we see two Philippine eagles soaring on Samar above the canopy. Jumping yeah. up and down, we had quite a few San Miguel's that night, but <laughs> it was Fantastic. great, you know. Fantastic. Brilliant. That's great. Um, yeah, I don't really want to end this, but uh, and we will definitely have to have to do it again. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm conscious I, we've done well over an hour of, of talking about Philippine eagles. I, um, I can't thank you both enough for um, for taking the time out of your busy schedules to to chat to me. And, and uh, yeah, we're going to share this. This is going to be part of a fundraiser that Raptor Aid are running to, to raise money for the Philippine Eagle Foundation to carry on the, the brilliant work that we've, we've discussed. So, yeah, fingers crossed, people, if, if you want to help out, then please make a donation. And all that money will be going straight to the, to the Philippine Eagle Foundation and, and the work that they do out in the Philippines. So, Neil, James, thank you very much uh, for taking the time to chat. Great to meet you guys, finally. Great, great to see and talk to you.